Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Here we discuss all things Black Hereford. Join me for in-depth conversations and insightful interviews relevant to your Black Hereford operation. I've got one sale report for you today. The American Black Hereford Holiday Showcase had 12 heifers averaging $4,875 and two bulls that averaged $4,250. Some really nice cattle in that sale, so well done to those consigners and the buyers. There's been some interesting conversation occurring over on the Chronicles Facebook page that was kind of spurred by that sale somewhat about the importance of performance data and taking and reporting those weights and the value of both performance numbers and EPDs. If you aren't following the page, head over there and get in on the conversation. Following the Chronicles on Facebook also ensures that you don't miss any episodes, especially if you're someone that prefers to listen directly off Facebook. Reality is that this show can no longer be posted into the members only page, Apparently, we're just a little too controversial here at the Chronicles. So just make sure that you keep that access to those episodes and those conversations that we're having about the industry and about Black Herefords by getting in on the Black Hereford Chronicles Facebook page. Today's episode features a fascinating interview with Maddie Schultz, a postgraduate from the University of Wyoming who spent her time researching the reproductive microbiome of open and bred cows and its connection to reproductive and overall health status. Her work was very interesting and the implications once all of those puzzle pieces are eventually put together could be massive. Let's dig in. Thank you, Maddie, for agreeing to come on the Black Hereford Chronicles and talk to us about some of the work you've been doing. Why don't we start off, will you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and where you come from and your experience in the industry? Yeah, so thank you, first off, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, My name is Maddie Schultz, and I'm from Meeker, Colorado. I grew up there, um, livestock judging, showing cattle and hogs and in the saddle quite a bit. So um, my entire livestock judging career, I was coached by my dad, Clint Schultz, and we had a pretty successful 4-H run. We were Colorado State champion team. I was a two-time state champion before I graduated high school, and then I continued my career in um, junior college judging at South Plains College, where I was on another really successful team. We were reserve champions at Kansas City, won Dallas and San Antonio. And so I um, chose to stay in West Texas, went to Texas Tech University for the next two years, where I got to be really involved in the ag college there in the animal science department, did a lot of undergraduate research with Dr. Sam Preen. And then I just finished up my master's degree at the University of Wyoming. I decided I missed the mountains and wanted to get a little closer to home. My uh, master's is in genetics and reproduction and animal science. So a lot of um, education experience, but I the whole goal of that was to be able to apply it to industry. I'm very, very passionate about the cattle industry and being able to grow up in that area was very, very important to me. And I have every intention of continuing that with the work that I do with my dad and our cows at home. And um, now I'm the current Merck Animal Health Cattle Representative for the state of Wyoming. And uh, that's a big, big, important first big kid job for me, you know, and my whole goal with that too is to help. I just want to be able to help producers and ranchers keep their cattle healthy, get the most that they can out of them as we continue meeting what seems like a never-ending list of challenges in our daily lives as agriculturalists in general. Definitely. Well, your dad has been talking to me all along about your research. And so when you finished that up, I was so excited both for you and to get to hear about it because it has been really interesting just getting the little glimpses from your dad. So let's dive into that a little bit. How did you land on a project first? Because I know when you're picking what your master's is going to 
focus on. There's so many choices. And then we'll jump into what you learned from there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some people spend their entire first year of their program just trying to choose a project. And I was very blessed to have um, an advisor, Hannah Hollinger. Her parents actually live in Meeker, so I've known her my whole life. And uh, she is a very driven individual that really had an idea for a project already. And so for me, it was a unique situation where she was like, okay, this is the project that I have in mind. Would you be interested? If not, I'm not offended. You can go somewhere else. So I honestly didn't have to waste any time in, um, you know, brainstorming, debating, anything like that. The only thing that I really worked on with her were the finer details because she's very genetics-based and I'm reproduction. And she was like, you know, you're going to have to help me with the reproduction side because that's the stuff that I'm not as well-versed in. And let's figure out how we can apply that to this project. So we actually wasted no time in getting the project going, which was very, very important because it it took a long time. You know, our goal was to look at the microbiome of the reproductive tract in bred and open cattle. That was our initial comparison. And we wanted to see if there were differences between those females in their reproductive tract. So right there, explain to us for anybody that hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about the microbiome, what it is and why it matters. So yeah, the microbiome is kind of a a new big term in the industry right now. And people are like, oh, you know, that sounds huge. But um, if we look to the Human Microbiome Project that got started in 2012, that's really the basis, you know, um, for all of this research in livestock. Um, it's, I, it's funny to me, you know, science is always evolving, but we used to think that everything was sterile and nothing. I tell you, absolutely nothing is sterile. Microbes are ubiquitous. They are in us. They are around us. And so that human microbiome project got going and they kind of did a whole, holy cow, they really are everywhere. What are they, you know, what kind of relationship does it have with our body? You know, and I'm sure the probably the biggest things you hear about are the gut microbiome right now in humans. And if you take care of your gut microbiome, you'll start to see some serious health benefits. And I'm a big believer in that. You know, there were some advisors at UW that um, they call it voodoo. They're like, this is all just voodoo. But um, so we took those applications that we saw, you know, the human microbiome project has far and away more research on humans right now than we have in livestock. And they've, they've moved from the gut to the skin microbiome and the oral cavity, and then got into reproduction for women. And there are so many implications in, um, you know, what a healthy microbiome can do for a healthy pregnancy, um, delivering that healthy baby at the right time, instead of preterm delivery, avoiding abortions you know, they've really started to tie it into even things like PCOS and ovarian cancers things, because if, I mean, it's just, it's bacteria in there and we know that there's good bacteria and bad bacteria. So it makes sense in being a huge part of um, causing disease in that etiology. So that's, you know, that's what we call the microbiome. And looking at the human microbiome projects and everything that they've done thus far, there was actually a lady that was a year ahead of me in our grad program. And she's now at the Baylor School of Medicine and was able to get in because of her research on the microbiome in cattle. And she's now applying it. She's on the human microbiome project there at the Baylor School of Medicine, which is so cool. So we took that, you know, and um, Hannah's lab She's a very new professor. I was only her second generation of grad student. And that's what we all focus on, you know, is um, the microbiome and different applications and mine was strictly reproductive. So we looked at that. We took um, vaginal swabs. We used a double sheath culture swab. It looked like giant Q-tip. And we went in and um, took an epithelial swab of the vaginal canal. And then we tried um, uterine swabs or, originally just on the open cows, because, you know, once you pass something through that cervix, you really run the risk of causing an early abortion. So we really wanted to try to avoid that. And 
did vaginal swabs and then uterine swabs on those open cows. And we were the first group to do a uterine swab. The other groups, you know, we really based some of our research off of what was going on at Texas A&M under Dr. Kai Poller's research. And they did a flush with a Foley catheter um, and just flushed the uterine body. And while I think that that method works fine, we wondered, you know, what what kind of contamination comes with that? And do you really get a good reading off of the sample that you've collected? So we figured we might try different ways, see if it worked better, worse, and be able to help the scientific community itself advance, you know, and make that comparison. And so we used those swabs and got in there and got those. And then our after our initial comparison, you know, with that bread versus open, we followed those bread cows all the way through gestation. And we tried to take samples. Um, the original idea was to represent the three trimesters of pregnancy, but we were really, really um, weary of taking any sort of samples, you know, first trimester or so. Mine is more representative of um, mid to late gestation. And we continued on with those vaginal and uterine swabs throughout. And um, two weeks prior to the expected calving date, we went ahead and tried uterine swabs on those females. We figured, you know, that we were late enough into gestation that we might not, if we did trigger an early calving, that right. they would be developing okay. And we did an amniocentesis to collect amniotic fluid. And that was that was pretty intense too. And we went in, um, I manually guided a needle through the reproductive tract to, yeah, to the amniotic sac and um, aspirated the fluid from the sac in hopes of getting, you know, some sort of sample that, so we can show, truly, truly show that there's really not a sterile environment in a body at all, because it was, it was definitely believed that the uterine body was supposed to be, was sterile. And that, that was a prerequisite for a healthy pregnancy. And that's just simply not the case. You know, we there's two or three studies now, including mine, that show there's a microbiome in that uterus, and it may be very important to help that um, fetus develop and the placenta develop. So after we got through all of our samples upon calving, um, we took whole placenta. You know, it depended on when they drop it. You know, I might have been waiting out there for five minutes or 12 hours for them to drop that placenta. But we took those placenta and um, we did efficiency measurements. And so you laid out the whole placenta and you counted cotyledons and measured them, got their surface area. And there's uh, one or two papers ahead of me, the, the grad student that's at Baylor School of Medicine, Dr. Gwen Hummel. She's, um, she's the one that did it first in cattle. And we're starting to find there's some ties between the amount of surface area on a placenta through those cotyledons and the efficiency that it can have, because that's a site of maternal, fetal, nutrient, and gas exchange. So it would make logical sense, right? That the more surface area there is in cotyledons, maybe the more nutrients can be exchanged between dam and fetus. And so I took those measures as well as part of my project and then took um, placental tissue samples from the three different types of placental tissue to add to my microbiome research as well. So it's a very extensive study. You know, we covered, we took it. I think I had over 300 some samples in the lab and I spent my entire summer, you know, in the lab extracting microbial DNA. <laughs> and, uh, but I think we, we got so much information, you know, my defense was last month, but there's so much from it. I think Hannah and I were talking and she goes, Dang, I could hire, you know, I could hire five more grad students just to extrapolate everything from your data. They wouldn't even have to have their own project. They could just use your data and we could publish so many papers on it. So there's still a lot to come from that data and stuff. I'm sure that we don't even understand yet because holy cow, when it finally came back, we we're just kind of swimming in all of it and picking what we felt was most important to talk about just so I could finish my degree. So I think that there's a lot there. So what were some of those most important takeaways? You know, um, that's a, it's still a question that I think about every day because I'm like, did I really get across what I wanted to in my defense? Because it was very important to me. Um, you know, sometimes I think academia can get lost in the finer details. 
And I can't tell you how many conversations I had with my dad and my advisor, my co-advisor. And I said, here, here's what it comes down to for me. We have to make this applicable for producers. I want them to know that this, you know, the money's not being wasted. And I really want this to be something of application later on down the road. So I really pushed that in my defense and tried to make it a little um, more extension talk oriented than scientific, which is not a route that students in academia go at all. But I really, really pushed that, that I wanted it to be that way. So, um, you know, one of the big cool takeaways is that we do see, you know, original research, especially in the rumen microbiome, considers the microbiome to be a very stable environment. It's hard to alter. And now that we are figuring out how to alter it, it doesn't last, you know, the change doesn't last very long before it reverts back to its original state. So, you know, there's so little known about the reproductive microbiome over time. We figured out that there is a microbiome in the reproductive tract, but what happens over time and more specifically, throughout gestation. So one of my big questions was, you know, are there shifts in the microbiome throughout gestation? And if they are, you know, how are we going to characterize those? And sure enough, you know, that was one of the very last things I presented in my defense. There are shifts and those shifts actually match up the shifts in the rumen microbiome throughout pregnancy, because I also pulled rumen fluid every sample date on all cows every time and you watch you know i have a really cool graph that i could bring up later that shows you know those shifts are very very similar and we watch the microbiome in both the reproductive tract so uterine environment vaginal environment increase in abundance and diversity which means you know all of a sudden we're seeing um, a larger numbers in the type of bacteria that's in there and microbes, you know, there's a little bit of RK and fungi as well. We see increases in the type and the amount. So all of a sudden, you know, that diversity is increasing and we've got this really robust microbiome. And we hit January, February in my study, you know, that month, two months right before our expected calving date. And you just watch it tank. There's just a severe decrease in abundance and diversity. And while I can't tell you why, you know, we sit and wonder, and a lot of the conclusions that we were drawing were, you know, this is the track's way of preparing for calving and making sure that that calf and that fetus is ready to go at the stage it needs to be at and get ready for parturition. And so I'm not sure what kind of mechanisms, there's just so many unknowns, you know, what does what role do hormones play in it was another huge question that we have because other studies watch progesterone levels throughout pregnancy at the same time as the microbiome and see some correlations to, you know, well, at this day, you know, the microbiome was the largest in abundance and diversity and the lowest in progesterone. And so there's just so, so many questions that we have. And while we found some big differences, you know, we found a few differences between bread and open cows, not as not as many as I would have expected. But, you know, there was a study with um, Alt and Clemens there at Texas A&M under Dr. Kai Poehler. And they did those comparisons between bread and open cows and um, cows and heifers as well. And um, I was really excited when we found some differences in the uterine microbiome of open cows compared to the bread cows, because um, Alt also found that difference. And she concluded, she said, you know, maybe there's a possibility that there's a very specific, closely related type of bacteria there in the uterus of those non-pregnant cows that is preventing them from maintaining or even establishing pregnancy. And so when I found, you know, a statistical um, difference or a tendency there in that uterine microbiome of those open cows, I was like, okay, you know, there's even more evidence to throw on the pile that there's maybe bacteria in there that's preventing these females from getting pregnant or maintaining a healthy pregnancy. So well, that was a big one. You have to wonder because we know that diet impacts rumen microbiome exactly. and if yeah if the rumen and the reproductive microbiomes are similar there's got to be connections that direction too 
Absolutely. And with a lot of our data, you know, in my um, closed session with just my committee, we got into that conversation. You know, where, where can we take this data from here? You know, it was more so not, I think we spent five minutes on what, what did you find? And it was more so what are we going to do next? Because yes, there, I am a firm believer in the fact that there have got to be nutritional ties because yes, you're exactly right. We know how nutrition affects overall health for starters and the rumen microbiome. And so what, you know, what kind of study can we design to look at how it might affect the reproductive tract? Because we know that nutrition is also important in fertility. And so if we maintain that BCS and have keep them on an increasing plane of nutrition, that's well-established research that we know it'll benefit not only the dam, but the calf growing inside as well. So yes, I think that would be something that definitely needs to be looked into. And, you know, there are multiple options for study design. And I think about that pretty frequently, you know, how, how would we put that together even, but, um, it would be interesting. And I hope that, you know, students that follow me within that lab or at other institutions will definitely try to make that comparison because it's one thing, you know, I just kept them on the same diet. I tried to keep them as close to, um, being managed as the, the rest of the university cow herd, you know, same, hay, same situation. So we could kind of say, you know, this is, this is what it's like on your ranch too. You know, I didn't do anything special to these cows, just kind of wanted to watch. It was a very observational type exploratory study. It's got to be hard to have scratched the surface of something, see all these possibilities out there, and then know that your turn is kind of up and now somebody else has to take over. Exactly. Yes. Um, I definitely had a PhD on my horizon with Dr. Hollinger. We talked about it. I It was a conversation every day in her office after I get back in from feeding cows. And, uh, you know, the Merck animal health thing came up and I was like, holy cow, this is kind of an opportunity that I'm not willing to pass up. This is exactly where I want to be. Because really, if if anybody knows me well, and I think my poor parents get tired of hearing it, especially in my time in grad school, I was like, I just, I just have to help producers. You know, I think that things get so, you know, that, that gets lost in translation or people get focused on other things. And I think our perspective, you know, and where, where we want to be rooted can sometimes get lost in the sea of things. And I, refuse to allow it to in my head. And I'm like, this is a great opportunity to go out and help people right now, keep their cattle healthy. But um, yeah, I definitely think people like Dr. Hollinger become associate professors and make a career out of it because you're right. There's, you scratch the surface and there comes so many questions. And I think she'll probably spend the rest of her life looking at um, the microbiome in cattle and in sheep, you know, she has students do it in sheep as well and what applications it has for livestock in general. So it definitely was, um, I can't even say that I've set it down yet. You know, I've been post-defense for a month and, you know, I, sometimes I wake up and scratch out questions on my notepad by the bed because I definitely have not quit thinking about the research. So how does what you learned in your research impact you going forward, helping people with cattle health? I know that, you know, there's nothing established that, you know, here's exactly what you need to do to protect the microbiome of your cows throughout pregnancy, but it's certainly going to inform you going into your new field. Absolutely. And, you know, I told my mom one day because it's hard to, you know, sometimes you have a bad attitude when your project starts to go a little bit south or you're tired. And a lot of times I would ask myself, I would say, you know, am I really doing anything that's going to help anybody? And that was another huge blessing from this position. You know, I'm in animal health now and those conversations are being had about the microbiome. So Merck Animal Health in particular has an excellent tech services team of veterinarians and ruminant nutritionists. And so when we get together for trainings and meetings and we start talking about vaccinology and immunology, they're bringing up the microbiome. And then it's funny because a lot of people will look at me and they're like, well, now we have a microbiome girl in the room. What do you say? And I'm like, okay, well, from what I've read, this is what I see. And so it was really cool for me. I got on the phone with my mom and I said, mom, my research is going to apply to my everyday life in this position. It really is. And she goes, 
tell me about it. You know, how? No way. And I'm like, I know, right? But if you think about vaccines, we're vaccinating cattle in hopes of eliciting an immune response to the bacteria that exists in their um, respiratory tract, reproductive tract, and everything on a day-to-day basis. And so that's what I think sometimes people don't understand. You know, I said nothing sterile. So they have a microbiome all the time. It's just when you throw that balance off, it's called a dysbiosis. That's when we start to see disease, when one bacteria starts to be in larger amounts than the others. And so being able to, you know, call on my producers and my vets and talk to them about that and say, well, they've got, you know, they've got pastorella in their nostril all the time. It's just the amount that we're seeing, you know, when is that going to start triggering clinical symptoms and true disease? And that's what we're trying to vaccinate against. And then, you know, if it doesn't work, that's when we pull in those antibiotic lines and our wormers and things like that to fight internal parasites. And so I didn't even understand when I was accepting the position, how much my research and the hours and hours of reading that I did, you know, to finish up this project would apply to my daily life in my job, which is so cool. Cause I think sometimes, you know, people work so hard to get a degree and then they're like, wow, I don't, I don't even miss my degree in my job. And especially, I think the more specialized you get, the more that can happen to you. Surely, you know, sometimes you get a job perfectly aligned with your specialization and other times you're just looking for what you can find. And so I'm very grateful that, you know, I embarked on that project um, got done with it. And now every day, you know, I can go in and talk with my producers, my veterinarians, and we get into some of those deeper discussions. And, you know, how can I help you keep your cattle healthy? Because I would hope that especially with everything else being so darned expensive right now, that if we can avoid having to doctor sick cattle and lose those sick cattle, I'm, I really think that that would help at least in one area. You know, I can't change the hay prices and the cost of diesel, but maybe I can keep your cows healthy. This episode is sponsored by Adams Farm, owned and operated by Charlie Adams. I've been looking at the cattle over at Adams Farm for some time now and can genuinely say they are raising black Herefords with some of the breed's most innovative genetics. Those girls have excellent udders and milk. Adams Farm had the very well-deserved top-selling heifer at the Royal Affair sale in October. You can check out Charlie and his cattle at tnblackherford.com, or you can email Charlie at charlieadams at nctc.com. Well, just as a producer and thinking about reproduction, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, well, it makes sense that if everything is going to impact the microbiome throughout the body, all the different microbiomes, we should probably be thinking about things we do intentionally and how that lines up with breed up season. You know, we know there's certain vaccines not to give when they're pregnant, but how long after they get those vaccines, is it going to impact their ability to catch? You know, maybe, absolutely, yeah, maybe I need to be thinking about that timing different than I have been. Perfect. Yes. I love that you went there because, you know, one of, I had this slide up and um, some people, you know, cause when you're preparing for your defense, you know, I had gotten everyone read my slides. I think my sisters had gotten sick of seeing my brown and gold slides with all my graphs on them because I had at the very end, I had this slide and I had a lot of questions, you know, are you sure you want to include that? And I said, yes, it's not going out. I refuse to remove that slide. And it was titled potential applications because like I said, you know, to you, the most important thing to me was making sure that I left people understanding that, well, it's not here right now. I think it's coming 10 to 15 years down the road. And my very first um, bullet on the slide was management practices. And I said, you know, I know that there's a lot of unknown and we don't know how hormones play a role. We don't know what nutrition does, but I think that the further we get into this research, it could help our producers change their daily management practices in preparation for things like breeding and whether you do natural service or AI, there are some things that you can do to maybe better prepare and have the most desirable, even though we're not sure what that is yet, microbiome ready for when we go ahead and try to get those cattle bred 
And then if you look at it from the other hand, this is always, I would get into debates with Dr. Scott Lake about this. And I love this conversation. I think it brings up a lot of good points. Um, I think it all can also get into selection pressure, maybe someday, which comes into management practice. You know, we have EPDs for a lot of things right now. And um, while I'm not a completely numbers-based girl, and I definitely like the um, being able to look at my cattle physically and make decisions there, I think that there's a perfect blend of EPDs and being able, you know, to look at them as well and make sure that they're sound and in good condition and things that only you can see with your eye. But what if we get to a point where we have a benchmark for a desirable microbiome and apply a selection pressure like we do genetically and pull hard, you know, we're, (laughs) I'm a big believer in pull hard if you want to advance your herd. And so if we develop something that allows a producer to, I don't know, go in and swab, like I did swab the vaginal canal and send it off and get their results back and go, Oh, you know, that's not really what we like to see. Maybe I'll just go ahead and get rid of her. And maybe we wouldn't be seeing so many issues with reproductive disease or failed pregnancies, if we can advance that, like we've tried to do with other genetic components. And, um, you know, that's a whole, that opens a whole nother can of worms, but it's a, I love having that conversation because I think it's a different way to think about it instead of a lot of times, I think we try to slap a bandaid on a, um, problem, a visual problem that we can see instead of finding what the problem is at the root. Why is it happening? Oh yeah. I can see Angus running with that hardcore. They're having so many conversations about lowered fertility rates as they kind of lean more terminal. Well, here you go. Now you can dig into why that might be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And as we chase, um, maybe I shouldn't say chase trends because that sounds a little negative, but you know, it is what we do here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As we push for one goal, others, you know, keeping that good level balance really starts to drop off. And all of a sudden, like you said, you know, we've pushed terminal, we've pushed pounds and muscle and um, carcass traits. As we push those, all of a sudden we see our maternal side really start to fall off. And all of a sudden people are struggling to find a good cow that'll carry a calf and be a good mom. And so I think it's, once again, there comes in that loss of perspective and hold up, you know, pump the brakes and let's make sure that we're properly addressing every aspect of our cattle and our operation. Well, give them a couple years and they'll have a dollar MB and we'll be able to yes. look on the chart. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think EPDs have their place and I think, you know, they're cool to read through and look at and there's some application there, but, you know, I, once again, like I said earlier, I'm just as big as being able to go out into a pen of cattle and evaluate which ones are the best. And if they've got decent numbers and really well balanced across the board, they're sticking around for me. So any other tips to producers that you would share from what you've learned? Oh, gosh, I think you and I could be here all day, you know, and we could talk about what I've learned. But, you know, um, like I said, with my research, it, it opened up more questions and answers being an exploratory study. So um, there's a lot coming down the road. And I hope maybe, you know, if we run into each other five, 10 years from now, I can say, you know, oh, my gosh, did you read on that? You know, I think that that's going somewhere. But I think the things that we know best right now that have been really well studied on um, how to prepare for breed up like you were talking about in your breeding season, we know that nutrition plays a huge role It's very important. And then I think um, I think some things that at least I've learned while being out in industry on this job just for a short six months is, you know, getting your cattle warmed is a very, it's, it's a minimal thing that you need to do. And I know everything's expensive right now, but if you think about it, you know, we breed those cattle and at Merck Animal Health, we suggest, you know, a lot of times you safeguard those cattle before the first freeze. And why not get rid of those internal parasites right before winter comes? Because like we discussed, body condition and nutrition is so important in maintaining healthy pregnancy. And if we've got internal parasites in there taking away, you know, their ability to absorb and the nutrition that 
the nutrition that does come through, the parasite takes up. If we can flush those out and get rid of those for our cattle, it will help us maintain a better body condition for those females. And it's not going to be such a hard fight, you know, because we've learned that if given, if forced with the choice, cows are going to give everything to that calf. And while I appreciate that, I'd like to keep our cows healthy as well. So, you know, those are practices that have already been well studied and applied and, you know, maintaining that nutrition and that health and having a a proper vaccine program is something that I can tell producers that you can do right now to help with your fertility and your reproductive rates. And that'll trickle on down the line to overall cattle health and hopefully performance, because that's the second portion of my project that we didn't even get to talk about. We sampled those caps and Dr. Hollinger's lab is seeing ties from the dam rumen microbiome to the calf developing rumen microbiome, which, and they did a study on these calves the year ahead of me. They took samples on the dam, on the calf at calving out to a month of life. And then those calves went on to a feed study to compare their performance and feed efficiency down the road. And they did find differences, you know, in those calves that had a stronger developing room and microbiome from the dam, you know, on day one, getting out and at the bunk. And that has major connotation for the entire fed cattle industry. And so if we have that trickle down effect, I think the core of any operation starts with their reproductive management, right? Because our goal is to feed the world and that requires getting more calves on the ground. But then we'll see that trickle down to every other aspect all the way up to the consumer. I just keep coming back to you saying that the rumen microbiome was so directly tied, right? I know. And we know that there's things we can do to help the rumen microbiome. I can't tell you how many times I've sent your dad a text saying what this heifer won't eat. And he's like, throw probiotics at it. You got to throw this at it. Yep. Surely that means there's got to be a link to growing that to help with reproductive health as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I brought up that potential application slide I had a couple of times and we've gone over, you know, I talked management practices, selection pressures. The next thing that I discussed was probiotics. When do we come up with? And I think that might be what they're closest to uh, a tool being developed, right? Is working on those probiotics that, um, you know, some sort of infusion that we're able to get into the reproductive tract because we know it's a very vascular system. And not only do we see ties between the rumen and reproductive microbiome, we see some of the same microbes in there. And we talk about ascension and um, hematogenous transfer through the blood. So all of a sudden we're seeing microbes that are originating, we think, in the oral cavity, but they're in the rumen because cattle chew their cud, right? Right. But all of a sudden we're seeing them in the vaginal canal. So absolutely, I definitely think there's a connection there. And yes, there are some things, you're right, probios are a big conversation. And I read a really recent paper that's like cutting edge. They're talking about developing a bacteriophage to put in the probio. So it's like a double whammy. You put those probios in there, which serve as a substrate for those more desirable bacteria that we want in there. But let's go ahead and stick a nice shot of bacteriophage that's going to go in and consume undesirable negative bacteria. And what do we do there? But then there comes that catch I was talking about. We could, yeah, clean up the microbiome. How long does it last? You know, we know that the microbiome reverts to its um, original state after some time. So being able to come up with something that has a lasting effect is what becomes important. And there's been some studies on um, mitigation of methanogens for methane. You know, that's a big Mm -hmm. hot topic right now. And some research is showing very possibly that they've seen um, a longer lasting effect by trying to modulate the rumen microbiome early in life. And it was on sheep, you know, and they looked at these lambs and they kept them in the jug next to mom, but kind of separated. So they still had access to water and they were able to nurse, but they started modulating the rumen microbiome with infusions to see if they could get a longer lasting effect than um, on mature animals. And they did find, you know, if we 
manipulate that rumen microbiome of our young animals, we see longer lasting effects because the more mature the microbiome becomes, the more stable it becomes and harder, harder to mess with and not have it revert, which I think it, once again, opens up a whole nother can of worms on how do we, how do we approach this? How do we, you know, so we're coming up with these probiotics and that's great, but how do we make it a permanent change? Well, and really what's causing at the heart of it, what's causing an unstable microbiome anyway. Exactly. And now we're back to our selection <laughs> pressures. You know, have have we bred for an unstable microbiome and had no idea? And if if we have, how do we how do we start fixing that? Is that through management practice, selection pressure? You know, it turns into this very vicious um cycle in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, well, here we are now. And what what comes from here? <laughs> I can't imagine that would be exciting and frustrating all at the same time. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so, very much so. And I think that's a a fight that Dr. Hannah Hollinger has every day too. You know, she's she's a very intelligent woman, and I think those thoughts. You know, we get into very animated conversations, and you know, you slam down your coffee cup on the table, and we just spent two and a half hours in here, and I don't know if we got anywhere, but we sure <laughs> talked about a lot. <laughs> so. Well, one of the things that is interesting about this research is that they're finding so many connections to the human side. Do you see, yeah, relevant stuff coming out of this for people? Absolutely. So, and honestly, the human side is so much more well-studied. You and I can apply things in our daily life right now better than we can apply to our livestock to um, help our own health. Absolutely. Because like I said, I talked a little bit about the gut microbiome and um, the studies, a lot of the papers that I read were, you know, I was trying to be more reproductive focused. So a lot of the papers that I read were on the vaginal and uterine microbiome of women and how that affects pregnancy and their Um, you know, those studies go as far as, you know, there's a lot of families out there that want nothing more than to have kids, but they have fertility issues and spend, I don't know how much money on, you know, IVF treatment or other options like that. And um, they've applied the microbiome, you know, and started taking samples, vaginal samples while they're doing IVF treatments and seeing as they get an improvement in specifically um, lactobacillus, the lactobacillus bacteria, um, they see better rates and improvement in women being able to get pregnant. And that lactobacillus, I think that's such a cool bacteria to talk about because it's a positive one. You know, it's one you actually enjoy talking about. And it is known for being able to maintain pH within the vaginal microbiome in humans and in cattle. And it also, being able to maintain that pH in that acidic environment, we think serves as kind of the first protective barrier and protecting the rest of the upper reproductive tract against disease and undesirable pathogens, you know, getting up there into the cervix and the uterine environment. Um, That lactobacillus is really known to protect that, especially in humans. And so, yeah, I think there are so many applications, you know, and if you get online right now and you, you look up gut microbiome, you'll come up with a million articles that'll tell you, well, if you need to be taking this supplement with these strains, you know, to really help your gut or, you know, as a woman, this is going to help your digestive system as well as your reproductive system. And, you know, for, for $30 a month, you know, whatever it may be, buy your pill bottle and take your, make sure you're taking care of your gut health. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And it's very important and something that you know, not, I don't necessarily think we ignored it intentionally. We just didn't know. And so there's so many applications for health in um, humans. And then we're really getting to a point now where we're starting to apply it to livestock. And that's where I get excited because cows are cooler, right? And I, I enjoy spending my time with cows more. <laughs> well, just the fact that there's a link between pH so much and yeah. then the implications that could come out of that. Oh, exactly. There are so, so many, so many routes you could take to explore this. And I do think that that is um, a cool part of, you know, kind of being, I wouldn't say on the forefront, but, you know, one of the first couple of studies to really look into this is it'll be fun, you know, um, however many years down, down in my career, you know, even if I do choose to go ahead and go get a PhD, it'll be fun to keep up you know, with the research and see the articles that come out and go, holy cow, I never would have even thought 
to take that in that direction and look at what they found. Because I'm sure that's exactly where we're going. There's going to be so much um, dedicated to it, or I hope, you know, people will dedicate a lot of their time and resources to looking into it. Cause I think there's a lot of application there. Well, if nothing else, there ought to be a lot of grateful graduate, early graduate students, because you have given them so many options now. <laughs> yes. Yes. I hope so. Yeah. I, um, there's a grad student in Dr. Hollinger's lab right now, Bryson Mills, and, um, his study is kind of built off of mine. And I think we talk about once a week, he'll give me a call and say, okay, if I remember right, you found this and I'm finding this and I don't know what it means. Do you have any ideas? You know, and we, we discuss a lot and I, I hope, yeah, that's another big goal of mine. I'm, I want to help producers and I want to help people down the road. And I try to do that in every aspect of life. I don't know if I'm good at it, you know, but do the whole, you know, this is, this is what happened here for me. And I, if I can help you avoid ever having to put up with that, I will. And so Bryce and I discuss a lot and I'll tell him, you know, absolutely do not do this in the lab because you will have a mess on your hands, you know, and hopefully that can make um, things a little bit easier for people down the road and give them, like you said, you know, lots of options and things to look at and other things that can go, you know, nothing really came of this. So let's, let's leave that aside and move down this path instead. Well, even though you may not be at the place where there's a magic pill to fix all of these <laughs> microbiomes everywhere, I think you've got me thinking as a producer, and I know other people listening will as well, just about the fact that stasis in a healthy cow, and you know, we can't look at our cows and see is the microbiome healthy, but we're going to have to just go ahead and roll with, she seems otherwise healthy. Keeping that stasis mm -hmm. then right before breed up is going to really matter. And that exactly. I can directly control. And I don't know that I would have thought about it as much. So there is exactly current direct value in the research you've done. Absolutely. And I also think, you know, you brought up, you know, we look at them and we, we say, as I can see, she is healthy, but what do we, what do, once again, another question, what do we not even know that might be showing outwardly that is a direct result of a dysbiosis in the microbiome? You know, we, you know, is, are they doing things right now that we assume is fine, but all of a sudden we have a healthy microbiome in a cow and she's not, you know, like she's far and above the others. And we're going, holy cow, I didn't even recognize that as maybe a symptom of a dysbiosis, you know, and I have, you know, there's no evidence and research for that yet, but it's a place that my brain goes, you know, is, are there things that are showing as outward symptoms that we're not even aware are there? And we assume, you know, this female's healthy. So it, yeah, it comes down to, like I said, lots of cans of worms to open up and discuss. <laughs> well, I'm just so grateful that you were willing to come on here and talk about it because it does, it gives us something to mull over, you know, and it reminds producers that all those little decisions that we make have consequences that we might not be able to see right away. Exactly. Exactly. And to just be more mindful. 100%, you know, really trying to do it all boils down to trying to do what's best, not only for your cattle, but for you, because the healthier your cattle are, the better your performance is, no matter what aspect we're talking about, reproductive, nutritionally, feed efficiency, you know, whatever it may be. So, um, and that's just going to hopefully help you as a producer. And I'm big on healthy, happy cattle. And it was really exciting to get to come on here too, and have a chance to talk about it, you know, because aside from my defense, um, starting my master's program in the middle of COVID really kept myself and my graduate partner from being able to do talks like a lot of grad students get the opportunity to do. Um, and that killed us, you know, because we both thought that we had some really exciting stuff to talk about in our own respect and um, getting out and being able to discuss it as extension talks really wasn't I think we got to do it once in April of last year and that was fun. But, you know, I think that this is something that, like you said, people need to be mindful of. So being able to discuss it is always exciting, you know. Well, it gives me hope to know that there are studies going on in the universities that maybe not today, but eventually 
will be able to help me improve my operation. And, you know, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but we do kind of crack jokes sometimes about the different graduate studies that happened. We were implanting embryos the other day in our ET tech had music playing in his trailer. And I told him, well, somewhere there's a graduate student studying what kind of music will improve those <laughs> conception rates. You yes. know? But yes, to hear, exactly. To hear ones that really long term we're going to get some cool stuff out of. That's fabulous. Absolutely. And I think you're right, you know, and that was one thing, you know, when I'd get real negative, you know, late night calving and I'd lose a calf and I'd be just angry and frustrated. I'm like, is this even going to do anything? And that was so like I was telling you at the very beginning of our discussion, you know, it was such a huge goal of mine to get out to producers and say, you know, this is where I think this can help you. And it may not be today, but call me in 15 years and I'll direct you somewhere that I think, you know, I can really get the job done. And yeah, I think, um, hopefully that would help producers. Cause I, I mean, we crack jokes ourselves in there and we're like, gosh, dang academia, you know, <laughs> we're not getting anything done. And for someone like me, sometimes I think, um, students in academia may have zero background. And so I really think that my background is the reason it's the sole reason that I was able to, I kind of fought it, you know, and some people were like, holy cow, she has a one track mind. And I'm like, you know what? I am not losing my roots to the education world. And this is going to, because I do think that there can be a disconnect, a major disconnect. And that was a big fear of mine. You know, I refuse to be in a white coat in a lab in the back and not get to interact with people and see if I'm even making a difference. And so very, very important to be able. And um, my dad, you'll have to talk to him about it. He laughed at the end of my defense. I kind of called him out and I said, you know, and I had a whole room full of people and probably 30 people on Zoom. And I said, okay, I know that every cattleman in here, including my father is sitting there going, okay, Maddie, what do I do with this information? And he laughed up there and I said, okay, dad, listen close. This is what I think we can do when we go home. <laughs> you know, And so that's very important. And yeah, I hope that it'll give, um, you know, producers everywhere a little bit of a better, um, I don't know, looking glass into what we're doing and at least at the University of Wyoming in hopes of improving upon how we um, manage our cattle every day. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to keep us informed and and talk to us about your work. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time. Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Hereford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.